Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. This episode is fire. No, literally, it's about fire and water and climate research. We talked to Professor Naomi Taig of the UC Santa Barbara Bren School of Environmental Science and Management about her research predicting and forecasting forest fire frequency and severity in California, as well as modeling how water flows through these landscapes. We discuss how she does her research, what data is used in the models, and how machine learning helps at different points, from making sense of raw data to helping understand model outputs. We also discuss how society benefits from her work, from urban planning to forest management. Finally, we talk about the state of climate research today and demystify the two most important things that you need to know about it. See what I told you? This episode is fire. Join in on our conversation and don't forget to like, subscribe, review, download, and share. So let's get to the interview. Naomi, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks, Glad. It's, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And you are coming to us from Jerusalem, right? I am. Um, although I'm actually formally a professor um, in California at UC Santa Barbara, I spend part of the year working remotely here from Jerusalem. I do some work with people at the Weizmann, so it really is kind of a global workplace for me. So first question that I ask people around, now that we're sort of coming out of the pandemic, or at least learning to live with it, what would you say for you, something that's changed for you post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic? That's a great question. So, you know, one thing that comes to mind is I've been using Zoom for at least, you know, half a decade and, and because my research is very much collaborative and I collaborate with people all over the world, all over the U.S., people in Spain, people in Israel, people in Australia, and we work on projects together. So I was already using these kinds of technologies to support remote interaction. So I thought, oh, I'm ready for this. And then I had to teach courses, right? And I had to do with students and I had to do all these other things online. And I learned a lot about how you do that well. Things I hadn't really thought of before, like it matters what you wear, um, that people get tired on Zoom. So you have to come up with ways to make it interactive and give, give people breaks. So I think I learned a lot. And then and then I think kind of conversely, I, I've come to really value even more those face-to-face -face interactions in my research. And I think when you go away from something, you come back, you see it with new eyes. And I really see yes. collaboration in person in new eyes. Yes, you appreciate those face-to-face -face time moments more. Naomi, you're a professor of eco-hydrology and eco-informatics at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara, as you mentioned. Can you Explain to us what that is. I know, eco-hydrology and informatics is kind of a mouthful. So we can break it down. How's that? Yes, please. Okay, so hydrology, you know, I study how water moves through landscapes, right? Um, you can think about it when it rains or snows, where does that water go? How long does it take to get to the stream? Does it go into groundwater? And then I also study plants, but plants really as you can kind of think of them as little carbon cycling processing machines that use water. And just to give you a sense, people 
often don't realize, you know, if you take the forested area in the US, those forests use as much water as com comes out of the Mississippi River in a given year. Plants wow. use a crazy amount of water. So if you want to understand what's happening to water, you actually have to understand what's happening to plants. And then kind of on the other side, plants need water. And so understanding things like how fire risk or, um, you know, increasingly because of climate change, we're seeing lots of forest mortality. Understanding where that's happening, are fires going to get more severe? Are plants going to die? You need to understand water availability. So it really is, there's lots of reasons why you want to look at water and plants at the same time. So that's eco-hydrology. Informatics, well, to do that, we used to do experiments in labs or little experiments out with a couple of trees. But to really understand these things, you have to look at watersheds and hill slopes and regions. And to really make, and these are complicated systems. You have climate, you have water, you have carbon. To put all that together really requires lots of data and lots of computer simulation. So because of that, informatics really is increasingly the way we understand how plants and water interact. And who uses the output of your research? So um, to say a little bit more about my research, what I do is I take all of this information, all of this data, and I combine it with what we call physically-based models, which are models based on theory or physics, you could think of a model of snowmelt. We know enough about the physics of snowmelt that we can turn it into a bunch of mathematical equations. And my model, we, I call it recess, right? It combines what we know about snow with what we know about photosynthesis, with what we know about groundwater flow, with a bunch of data. So it's kind of taking theory and data and putting it together. So who's going to use the results of that? Well, we use it to answer questions like, as climate warms, how does water availability change? So for example, in places like California, a lot of our water comes from snow. It's already warming enough that we're seeing changes in the timing of snowmelt. What is the implication of that for managing your reservoirs for groundwater supplies? So water managers love our research. Insurance companies are interested in our research, right? If we can understand how fire probabilities are going to change with climate change, they want to know that, right? They want to know how their fire risk is going to change in the future. We're really about saying, based on our best available science, what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? And many types of natural resource management needs to know that. How much water are we going to have? How much fire are we going to have? How, how is... Are we going to have more fire in one place and less fire in another? So should we already be thinking about changing our resource allocation? So it really is, if you think about it, we depend on water and plants in many, many different ways. So we want to know what's going to happen to them if climate changes or if land use changes, right? What if we urbanize? How does that change um, carbon cycling? What I really love about the recess model, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you really get outputs and, and you get processes that are working at different scale and at different granularities from square foot granularity to looking at the entire uh, watershed or an entire area in, in the watershed. So you really have different outputs that have different uses for different people. Yeah, that's, it's, that's exactly right. So 
you know, one of the things we model in, in rhesus is how the stomats in a leaf work, right? Which is really fine scale, right? What causes them to open and close? Because that determines how much, um, how productive the tree is going to be, how much water they're going to use. You know, ecophysiologists, they do, they spend a lot of time measuring what's happening at those, at that really tiny leaf scale. But it's hard to say anything about things we care about, like how much water you're going to have in the stream or how much fire you're going to have, if you just know that for one little leaf. So a lot of what we do is say, okay, well, that leaf is part of a tree. That tree is using water that's in the soil. Um, how much water there is in the soil is going to depend on where you are along a hill slope. Are you down near the stream? Are you up on the ridge? Are you on a north-facing slope that gets, gets less sun or a south-facing slope that gets more sun? So then we kind of can scale up, scale up to a hill slope. And then we can think of bigger landscapes as just populations of hill slopes. So what we really do is we take these kind of fine scale processes about plants or about something like how quickly water infiltrates different types of soils, which is, you know, something that you're going to measure, you know, at a meter scale, right? And understand how those are going to vary over a landscape. So that's really how we scale up with this technology. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, and that's that's fascinating to me. That's mind blowing that you can go from a leaf to an entire watershed and understand the processes that take place. You mention these measurements, of course, that we take field measurements, and that brings me to my next question about data. What is the data that you are ingesting at these different scales? What kind of data? And it it makes me think, and I'm really really glad that I have a real life climate scientist to talk to today, because I have all these questions in regards to, for example, over the last 20 years that Rhesus has been running, has the data changed? Has the kind of data changed and or the type and, you know, versus is it field measurements versus satellite data, or maybe there are other automated measures. The volume of data has probably changed over the last 20 years. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that has affected the model and the research? Yeah, data. We love data. The more data, the better to some extent, right? So in the early days of this kind of modeling, really often all we had were digital elevation models, right? One of the first big data things that came online were just models of you know, data that told you what the topography was like, right? You know, if you put, if you click on Google and you see it to the topography, right? It was the, that data has been around for decades, right? We kind of know what the elevation is. So we started, that's all we had. Now we're ingesting satellite data and satellite data has also been around for a couple of decades, but um, increasingly we have better satellite data and by better, I mean higher spatial resolution, right? We can get down at finer, finer spatial scales and actually better what we call spectral resolution. So the, the signals that they're getting from the remote sensing data are more are finer and we're able to learn more. We used to be able to just tell that there was some kind of green mass sitting on the landscape. Now, sometimes we can actually know what it is. Is it a pine, is it a Aleppo pine tree or is it an oak tree? Remote sensing data has also gotten better. We we're in the era now of something called LIDAR which gives you, um, you know, centimeter scale 
resolution information. And so we can say a lot about what the structure of a forest is. And so we use that with our model in multiple ways, right? Sometimes we use it as inputs to kind of create the initial conditions on a landscape. Sometimes we use things we learn from the patterns in those data to help us reduce uncertainty in some of the unknowns, things in the model that we don't know, we can kind of infer from that data. But I wanna be careful to say that like, okay, there's satellite data, there's all these big data sets, but, but still there's a lot we don't know that we're still learning by really small scale on the ground field measurements, right? Um, we're doing crazy things now like, um, it's really hard to, it's easy to do remote sensing above the surface. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to do remote sensing below the surface, right? Mm -hmm. So people have been doing crazy things like drilling down 30 meters with these new drills and taking kind of- um, Oh, wow, okay. <clears throat> yeah, or sending pulses into the earth to see how quickly they come back to try to create like almost an image of what's happening below the surface. We, for years, we've been using something called flux towers where- you measure the turbulent eddies above the land surface, like vegetation. And from that, you can actually measure how much water the plants are taking up and how much photosynthesis they're using by how much carbon. It's very cool. You're looking, there's always these turbulent eddies in the air above you, right? And you can measure how much carbon is going in the upper part of the eddy versus how much is in the down part of the eddy. Really cool. We, we, we're just cool, walking around right? the forest not realizing there are all these eddies going on all around us. Um, You're, if you could see it, you'd be surrounded by all these little turbulent eddies, right? Like imagine a, a smoke, you know, if you take smoke and if you could see it, I think you'd find it fascinating. So we measure stuff like that, but we can only measure those things in little places. So then we still have to use the model to try to integrate those point measurements into something meaningful. Something. Did um, I answer your question about data? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's so much no. to say about data. Yeah, exactly. I'll say one more thing about new data sets beyond remote sensing. Um, kind of a thing we're using a lot now are sensor networks, which are different than remote sensing, which kind of gives you spatial coverage, but you can have little sensors everywhere and turn them into networks, right? And that's kind of been it. And, we're able to use um, wireless technology. So you might have some of those sensors in places that you normally can't get to easily, right? So we've learned a lot from that or from even using new understandings of isotopes. So we can use the ice, we take measure, we kind of like go into a tree and take a sample of the water that's in the stem and look at its isotopic composition. And then we can tell a little bit about where that water must have come from. So these kinds of data points, um, like you said, they're not remote sensing, but they're technologically sophisticated. So then the question is, what do we do with all of this? And I think there's two things, right? Sometimes these field experiments teach us something about one of the mechanisms we're representing in the model. Let's say I was talking earlier about how plants open and close their stomats, right? From this, from these flux towers, these eddy covariance flux towers, we've learned about what are the conditions that cause them to close their stomats. So we changed the theory that we embedded in the model. There was like a new theory about how they did that. So sometimes it actually means we change the way we represent certain processes in the model. That doesn't happen so often, but it does happen. 
most of the time we're using this data to what we call calibrate our models, right? Some of the parameters, we don't know their exact values. So we look at these measurements and we compare it, these measurements to what the model thinks they should be. And we use that to adjust certain parameters in the model. It's kind of like fitting a regression line if you've ever done that. So I know traditionally the rhesus model worked on uh, hydroecology and water measurements and watersheds. But you mentioned that you've been doing work around uh, modeling fire. Is that using the same data or do or what kind of data do you use for modeling fire? In many ways, it's very similar data. A lot of the data, a really important piece of data you need for all of these types of um, models are fine resolution climate data, right? We need to know how precipitation and humidity and temperature are varying at really fine spatial scales. Um, that's true if you're trying to estimate stream flow, it's true if you're trying to mess estimate fire probabilities. So that part of the data stays the same. What are the tricky things about fire? Although if you're in California, you probably think they happened all the, all the time. They happen very rarely, right? Really? It doesn't so seem if, that way. Yeah. I know. I know. You think they're happening all the time. Even Jerusalem, we recently just had a fire That's outside right. of Jerusalem, right? If you listen to the news, fires happening all the time, but in any given landscape, it's actually pretty rare. It's hard to learn a lot about fire just from purely analyzing data, right? Because there's not enough given how much heterogeneity there are in landscapes. It's a different type of forest. It's a different uh, climate. It's a different soil. All those things matter. And so one of the ways we get data is we actually get tree rings and we can see low intensity fires don't kill a tree, but you can see it in the tree rings as a fire scar. And from that, we can tell in different landscapes how often fires occur. And we use that data to help calibrate our model. But the other big thing, it's not so much that fire is a problem, it's fire severity. One of the big messages we always want to get out is that fire is a pretty natural occurrence in many landscapes. The fire that used to happen was pretty low intensity. It just kind of went through the undergrowth. And if you could sort of think of it as cleaning out all the brush, we started to suppress fires. And so all that undergrowth got really dense. So now when we have a fire, it's way more severe. So we use our Reese's model to kind of model the growth of that understory and the overstory and how the how that changes, not just the probability that you'll get a fire, but how severe that fire will be. Because what we're really worried about are severe fires. So to do that, we're talking about forest structure. We're talking about how much understory you have, how much overstory, how densely packed are the trees, and how does that affect hydrology? Forests burn more when they're dry. So we're still back to eco-hydrology, right? Mm -hmm. How dry is everything? But we're having to do this on a kind of finer scale. So we're having to ingest new information about forest structure. And for that, we're using things like LIDAR data, which is really high resolution. You fly a plane over there and you get this centimeter scale picture of the forest. And you mentioned machine learning. That's where machine learning comes in. This LIDAR data, when you first get it, it's a mess. <laughs> and to make sense of it, you need machine learning before you even begin to ingest it into my model, right? Okay, so as part of a, a data pre-processing step, you need to use, how do you use machine learning? Right, so what you're really getting when you fly a LiDAR, when you fly a plane and you collect LiDAR data, are LiDAR is emitting a pulse, kind of like what I said about soil, it's emitting a pulse, and they, as it goes through the forest, it gets bounced back at mm -hmm. different times. And so they measure the kind of 
how long it takes for these pulses to come back. So you can imagine what the data looks like. It's just a bunch of data on different pulses and how quickly they came back. And does that right? measure do, the density of the forest? It measures the density at multiple levels, Okay. right? So imagine a tree, it's telling you how much biomass there is at the top and then maybe another meter down, another meter down. Okay. What's, and, the, and what portion of that biomass is wood versus leaf? Because they have, they'll return mm. different, differently because they're different materials, right? Mm -hmm. Turning all those numbers that are essentially just returns from the pulse, multiple pulses into something that tells me how much biomass there is, that's a machine learning problem. So you could think about it as identifying tr a trunk of a tree versus a leaf versus the ground versus an open space versus a shrub. Ultimately, the question, as you said, is, is A, the, the chances of there being a fire, but then also the severity of the fire. What is the measurement of the severity? Is it, like you said, the, the marks on the tree? Yeah, how good question. Fire severity, real, the marks in the tree are kind of just like an indicator of how often fires happen. Mm, okay. Really what fire severity is, is how much of the biomass that was there before the fire is gone, uh, right? Okay. So in a really high severity fire, it's like a wasteland, right? There is nothing. Right. There's just right. dirt. Nothing left, right? yes. Charred Yeah, earth. if you've yeah. ever seen that, it's, it's, like, yes. it's like being on the moon, right? Yes. Although it's beautiful, just as an aside, you go out and you look at those landscapes, it comes back. It's, it's just, a, it's, it's kind of amazing. But those are the really dangerous fires. They move really fast. They have lots of fuel. They're burning the overstory. They're burning everything in their path, right? A low intensity fire, a less severe fire, after the fire, there's still going to be lots of live vegetation. The taller trees are going to be fine, right? So it really has to do with how much of the vegetation um, goes away. And then I guess I would say one more thing. One of the reasons we're doing this is partly to answer questions about as climate changes, where is fire risk going to increase? Where is it going to decrease? You wouldn't think that with climate change, fire risk would decrease. But in some places, if things get really hot and dry, the fuels grow so much more slowly that you actually get less fire. Mm, mm -hmm. But many places it, it will, you'll have more severe fire because things are hotter and drier and the fuels are drier. You're always right. kind of trading off between how much fuel you have and how dry that fuel is and what the weather is like. But the other thing we are trying to help people understand is how do fuel treatments help you? So what a fuel treatment is, is going in and changing the forest structure. Um, it's doing some fuel treatments are actually fires, right? You do a controlled burn and you burn right. away that understory. So then you no longer have the ladder fuels that allow a severe fire to happen. So they don't stop fire, but they make them less severe. Mm -hmm. So our model is trying to say, how often is that going to help? How quickly will the forest regrow after you spend lots and lots of money doing a fuel treatment? Uh, those are the kinds of things we're trying to use the model to tease out. So it's not just how fire is going to change with climate, but also when do fuel treatments help and where's the best place to put them? You talked about all of this data, all of this new and complex data, and the sort of multi-granularity of the models and how utilizing machine learning in order to make sense of this data and integrate it into the model. So it, it sounds like it's a very, very complex environment. Is there a downside to having such a complex environment and complex models? How do you work with that? 
Great question. It's something you struggle with as a modeler. A model is never reality, right? It's always a simplification of reality. You try to get the most important factors, partly to understand what are what are the levers, right? What are the most important things that explain mm -hmm. the patterns in water availability or fire that we see, right? And what are the things that we might be able to influence, right? That are going to have a big effect, not a tiny little minuscule effect. So we always try to do that as simply as possible because as soon as you add complexity, you need more information, you need more data. There's more uncertainty in both how much we know about the process, how well we can characterize, um, you know, take for example, the subsurface rooting zones, right? It clearly makes sense that knowing something about how deep roots are, it's gonna be really important for understanding how much water vegetation can access, right? Deeper roots, more water, right? Mm -hmm. Is it important to know how, just how deep those roots are? Or do you have to know something about the whole root network? And does the root, do the roots of neighboring trees overlap, right? That's a much more complex understanding, right? To start to understand what those root networks look like and how do they evolve under different stress conditions. Mm -hmm. So do we need that additional complexity? For some questions, we don't. And for some questions, maybe we do. For the questions where we don't need that, it's better to not include that in the model because it's really hard to get any data on what those root networks look like. I'll tell you a cool side story if, if I'm allowed. Yes, please. Uh, one of my fun collaborations with the Weitzman, with um, Tamir Klein, he's a professor there. We've, we've had this question about root networks and how do they change with stress because it matters for ecohydrology sometimes. So he's building a greenhouse where he's growing trees in saturated air. So instead of being in soil, they're in kind of wet air. So mm -hmm. we'll be able to see the root networks of trees oh, wow, that's growing cool. live. And then we can mm -hmm. stress them and see how the networks change, which I just, as an aside, I think it's super cool. That's not remote sensing data, but it's really interesting data. But I digress from your, your question about complexity. Um, I think you always try to keep things as simple as you can. Um, but then sometimes you investigate, you do experiments where you add in complexity in a place where you know a lot to see if it makes a difference. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then for all the places where you don't have enough information to handle the complexity, you go, oh, it doesn't make a big difference anyway. And if it does, then you try to find new data to help reveal what you need to know about the pro these complex processes. And speaking of new data, I guess that kind of leads me to another sort of side question. Is there still any kind of data that is limited for you that you wish you had more of? Is it something that, um, like you said, machine learning helps with? What data do well, you wish you had more of that you don't? I think there's, it's good to, differentiate, and I know you know this because this is your field, right, between data and machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of, some of what I've been talking about are new data sets, which are really new technologies for extracting data out of the natural world. And, you know, there I would say that hidden subsurface, like any data that can tell us more about, you know, anything about root networks and what they're doing beneath the subsurface. If we had some remote sensing data that would give us that, that would just be, 
that would be a game changer. The subsurface is still this big unknown. We still don't have enough data on how different species of trees respond to stress. We still don't have enough data about where water goes when it goes really deep in, in what flow paths it takes through mm -hmm. the subsurface. These are things that I think it'll be decades us trying to find data sets to do that. Even things though that seem like they're easy to measure, you would think like precipitation, easy to measure, rainfall. Now we have radar data, but we still actually don't really know. We don't have really good estimates of how much rain and snow falls in high elevations in mountain areas. Even in California, which has some of the best instrumentation out there, never mind what's happening in the Himalaya, where, you know, how much snow falls and how much rain falls has huge implications for water supply for India, because you can't really use radar, it, radar in these big mountains, right, high up in these mountains, right? So how do you even, we don't even always know, have really accurate estimation of how much rain is falling up there or how much snow is falling. And we've got new ways of trying to get that, these um, new sensors that they're putting on airplanes that we can tell mm. us something about that. So there's lots of places where we need new data, but then there's machine learning. For all of these data sets, we're still so needing machine learning to make sense of them. Like I said, I have this LIDAR data, but I need somehow to translate that into how much biomass there is. I need machine learning to help with my model output even. My model outputs tens of thousands of variables. Machine learning can help me make sense of my model output. Machine learning is needed to help us run these models faster. So machine learning comes in both in analyzing data, analyzing model output, and even in how we do our modeling. So, you know, for you machine learning people out there, we need you. Absolutely. Um, can we hire you, Gilad? Can you yes. come back to the natural science world? Leave, leave the world of business and come back to nature. <laughs> you talked about model outputs, which I, as you mentioned, can also be very, very complex and a lot of data. How do you convey the outputs in a meaningful way to non-technical stakeholders in terms of having them understand actionable insights from these models? I love that question because it's something we've thought about a lot. So, you know, as traditional scientists, we publish papers and we make graphs, right? We love graphs um, and graphs are great for scientists. And to be fair, a lot of um, agencies, right? The California, Cal Fire, right? The US Forest Service, um, agencies all over the world, a lot of them are actually surprisingly technologically sophisticated, right? You can show them a graph and they, they understand graphs, mm -hmm. right? But graphs only take you so far and you're right, like we need to do more. And we've thought about that. And one of the things that we've been trying to do lately is, it's hard to do this in a podcast. I wish I could show you Rhesus, right? But, you know, Rhesus is for every point on the landscape, it's modeling the growth of vegetation every year, how much photosynthesis, how much new leaves there are, how much new stems. It's also modeling how much carbon is being taken up by these different components, where water's flowing, things you can see like stream flow, but also things you can't see like evaporation, right? Trees are always mm -hmm. evaporating water, all those little turbulent eddies, right? So the model is doing that, but it's doing it over landscapes that would make sense to people, 
some of it is things you can see. You can see a tree, you can see grasses, you can see fire. So what we thought is, well, couldn't we make visualizations and kind of use our model to derive gain engines and make games where you start to do things like, hey, if I put a fuel treatment in over here, how does it affect fire? Oh, wow. Okay. And we want to do that also because my sense is one of the challenges um, with communicating the results of natural science to the public is the public doesn't always have a good intuitive grasp of probability, right? So, you know, we say that, well, climate's warming and it's going to mean that snow's going to melt earlier, but it doesn't mean snow's going to melt earlier everywhere and every right. year. It's just, but our model, we, you could run a bunch of different years and see how often, and you can create games with that. All right. How often is the snow going to melt earlier? Right. And then you can run our simulation or if I'm running a reservoir, how should I run it? And then warm up the climate and see, do I have to change how I manage my reservoir? And so we've kind of been working with game designers and artists to say, are there ways we can turn our output into like a game that would help people understand? I don't know. What do you think, Gilad? Is it going to work? I actually think it would work. And I think that's a brilliant idea because, and we see this in business too, and I'm sure this is true for, for any any field, but the taking the approach of showing a sort of you're anchoring it in the business need or the business question or the management question, like how do I manage a reservoir? And then by portraying the outputs of the model in a, in a way that will answer the business question, um, I think it makes it way more intuitive and actionable for these stakeholders rather than, like you said, showing them a graph or showing them data and then they have to make that leap. Okay, well, what does that mean for me? You know, the, the, like you said, the probability of early uh, uh, snow melt is going to go up. Well, what does that mean for my reservoir? But by anchoring it in the reservoir or anchoring it in the uh, uh, fuel treatments and what their actionable item is, saying how, how and portraying the output as how that affects their specific business action, for lack of a better word, I think is, is a... a brilliant way to convey the importance of the output and what you can actually do with it. Because I've always found that one of the things that is difficult is for uh, people to make that leap from here's the raw data or the raw outputs. And what does that mean for me? What is, what's the action item from this? I, I think that's so true. And, you know, and games, I think, do the other thing about games is they help you understand trade-offs. Right. Because some yes. often the action is, you know, people want easy answers to land management and climate change and all these pressing environmental problems. And I can tell you, uh, like, if there were easy answers, we, we would do if there were easy things to do, we do them. And and so they're off. There's almost always trade offs. Right. And I think one thing a game environment helps you understand are trade offs. Right. I guess the other thing we're trying to get at with the visualization is an appreciation of how dynamic nature is even an urban environment, like you said, you don't walk through a forest or even walk through your little neighborhood park and see that these plants around you, they're sequestering carbon, they're using water, there's all this stuff, like there, there's stuff happening. And part of also what we want to do with the visualization is show people that these are, these things are doing stuff that you can't see. So it's kind of making the mm -hmm. invisible visible. Yeah. We, you know, if you have a tree where you start to see the water, you see the carbon coming in and out, like that, that stuff is right. what we, what would be super cool. And we've thought about doing this. We haven't done it yet, 
but if you could walk around and see an actual tree on the landscape with yeah. VR glasses, and then we could like show you, even then show you the graph of what it's doing, right? Mm -hmm. So you could link that graph with an actual tree that's actually using water, right? So the metaverse is coming and you could just be taking a walk through forests and seeing all the eddies all around you. And uh, yeah, I think that would be really, really cool. Climate research and climate change, of course, has been very much in the news in recent years and has been uh, growing more so, especially with uh, right now, this is germane with uh, the uh, climate conference in Glasgow. If there was one myth that you could dispel around climate change and climate research as a climate researchers, what would that be? Again, a great question, Gilad. Can I give you two? Yes, please. As many as you, <laughs> as you can think of. The first is people still think, oh, this climate change that's happening in the future. And I think it's really important to realize that we've already had climate change. It's not coming, it's here, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, you can look at, uh, we've talked about snowmelt in the Sierras, right? I could show you trends in snowmelt in the Sierras and it's melting earlier. And this is having really big impacts on fire, on water availability, right? Like climate change isn't the future, it's now, it's already happening. And I think that's an important thing to get because it means we have to, already be adapting to something that's shifted. And people are only starting to catch up with that. Like we, you know, you have to think about water resources in a new normal. It is not the same. So I think one thing is that climate change is already here and you already have to be adapting to it. The other one would be that going forward, climate change, you know, you talk about Glasgow and everyone's talking about these targets, like 1.5 or two degrees warming. And, and I have some sympathy for the public who go, well, so what if it's two degrees warmer? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's two degrees, <laughs> it was two degrees warmer this morning than it was this evening and I didn't die. Right. And, and I think part of that is that climate, when we talk about that warming, that's average warming, but embedded in that average is two things. One, climate change affects different places differently. The Arctic, for example, is much, the, the, the rate of warming is much greater than it is at the mm -hmm. equator. It, it's not the same everywhere. And the impact of that heating, it's not the average, it's the extremes. It's the extreme heat events that comes with that. It's the changing of the water back to water. One of the biggest impacts of climate change is the effect on precipitation. It doesn't just mean that things get warmer. It means that in general, places that are drier get drier and places that are wetter get wetter bigger floods, bigger droughts. So it's, it's that you have to translate those averages. Their averages are, are misleading. They're right? very misleading, yes. We try, to, we try to avoid using them, yes. Yeah, and the whole, what's funny about Glasgow, the climate change discussion has kind of centered around averages, but you and I know that averages are incredibly misleading. Yes. And the impact of climate change is not because of the averages and the impact of temperature on other things. That's very, very fascinating. So there, there seems to be, I guess it's a, it's a question on one hand, it seems to be really, really oversimplified the, the conversation about uh, climate change. But on the yeah. other hand, you can't get too technical and too in the weeds about it and too sophisticated. It needs to be at a level where the public understands and can process it. But maybe this kind of conversation around just average temperature, yes, two degrees a year, just doesn't sound compelling. 
Well, you know, this takes us back to what we were talking about earlier, right? The need for things like visualizations or the need for things yes. like games, the need yeah. for, because, you know, everyone goes, oh, well, we have like, I hear this a lot. Oh, well, it's for policymakers of the public. We have to make it super simple. And I feel like, yeah, there's truth to that, but let's not underestimate the public. Maybe there are ways we can help them understand the complexity rather than always going to the simplest Mm -hmm. like kind of knee-jerk, oversimplified explanation. Like sometimes I think that gets us into trouble. And so can we try to help the public understand even just a little bit more of the complexity? I think the onus is on us to do that and not always underestimate policymakers and the public, but to start helping them understand how these things work. Absolutely. I think that is a, it's a fascinating topic and, and I could spend just an hour talking to you about that, about how to communicate results to your target audience in the right way. Um, I'm sure you've done that in, in, like, it would be great to hear from you how you've been doing that in your fields, right? Because I'm sure you run into the same problem. Yes. And actually, and I was just talking about this at a meeting the other day in terms of uh, there's the art of communicating data stories, that one of the things that i found that has been fundamental in sharing data stories is that you, there has to be a balance between showing something that is intuitive, that will give your stakeholder confidence in the data, meaning that it's something they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, this makes sense. And so, and something that is surprising and they're like, oh, I yeah. never thought of this. And this is why it's important. And this is why this research is important. You have to find that balance because if you go to the extremes one or way or the other, then you miss the mark because if everything that you show is intuitive, then they're like, well, what do I need this research for? Or what do I need these insights for? Like, you're not telling me something I don't know. But if you show them only things that are surprising to them, then, then they think, well, I don't really have confidence in this data because... It just, none of this makes sense to me because it doesn't, it's not intuitive. It's not what I intuitively thought. So that balance between intuitive and surprising is an art, in my opinion, that when conveying data stories, you have to get just right. And it changes based on your target audience. If it's more technical people, if it's more, you know, business oriented stakeholders, you really have to know your audience and strike that balance between intuitive and surprising. Wow, I love what you just said. I, I, I wish, hopefully it's a podcast and I can make my students listen to what you just said. Yes, right? please have them, you know, download, I, I, no. like, review, subscribe. <laughs> it's great. No, it's, it's because it, what you said is so important. We, and, and I think we don't think about it often enough how you really do have to do both. Like I could think about we, you know, when we publish a paper on fire, and like I said, there's that surprise where there's places where maybe fire risk goes down. But if you just show that, then no one believes right. it, right? But if right. you show, oh, exactly. but in all these other places, it kind of does what we think, what you intuitively imagine, which is we get bigger, more frequent, larger fires, right? But here's right. some exceptions that are interesting. And, but you have to do both. And, and I think in many ways, we often forget to do that. And I really like that as, as, we need to start coming up with a list of principles for yes. if we're going to commute, communicate complexity from data science, what are some things you should think about in your communication? Looking forward, and you know, we're almost at 2022, 
um, starting to live with the with with the pandemic. What is what are you excited for that's coming up for you in the, in the near future? I think I've hinted at at least two of them. One, we have been doing this um, developing sort of computer gaming based on the model. We've been working with um, some experts in human computer interface and Unity game engines, and so um, and but also with a local artist who translates some of our theoretical talks about things into, believe it or not, oil paintings and interesting things like that. And he helps us design the interface for the game. Um, so I'm excited about moving forward on that. But he and I, Ethan Turpin, um, we also have actually been writing a book on what it takes to do art science collaboration. So we're about to submit the book to some publishers to see if we can get someone to, to take it to the next step. And so I'm super excited about that my super, art super science. Uh, I will look forward to that book. So if uh, people wanted to find out more about your research and uh, these publications, where can they find you? Um, we are tagteamlab.org. There's Tag Team Lab. And then uh, I am a professor at UC Santa Barbara in the Bren School. Um, so you can always find me there as well. Awesome. Fantastic. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>